Right. But okay. So if we're actually talking about names and subtitles and whatnot, is it Lupin or is it Lupin? The name and the deployment of his name or names uh, is kind of a plot point. So okay. it is Lupin. But who are we kidding? If I got on here and said, <laughs> are you watching Lupin? Everybody would be like, next, I'm going to Dax Shepard. Goodbye. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Lainey. I'm the editor and founder of LaineyGossip.com. I'm also a talk show host and an entertainment reporter in Canada. And um, I... Joanna doesn't know this yet. I'm about to break it to her right now. I talked to the incomparable Hunter Harris today, who I am obsessed with um, for like a good 25 minutes. So, um, and I think we had a good call. So be jealous of me. Ha ha. I'm Joanna Taha. I am a television screenwriter and producer. I do not have a jealous bone in my body, but I am now going to blow up Elaine's phone just to annoy her um, (laughs) so that she can't sleep, just to find out every detail. On today's episode, we are talking about Rebecca Hall. She has a movie premiering at Sundance. It's called Passing, and it comes with a personal revelation about herself. The movie stars Tessa Thompson and Ruth Negga, both biracial actresses, and a lot of people questioned whether Rebecca Hall would be the person to tell the story. We'll delve into why she was and what that means for the rest of us. Speaking of British actresses, then Carrie Mulligan, promising young woman and a controversial review. We unpack the situation between Carrie and Variety and... Uh, We wrestle with whether or not you can comment on an actor's appearance. In our year of 2021, what is okay to say, what isn't, and does it matter what the performance is about? We will find out about all of it. This is Show Your Work. All right, um, so last week we You know, on the show today, um, on the social, we were talking about mispronouncing people's names and when it's deliberate and malicious, obviously related to Kamala Harris and the, there are certain people she um, is supposed to work with on the other side of the political spectrum who, you've heard the stories. Anyway, but we got to talking about what happens when you mispronounce someone's name um, and then Cynthia, uh, one of our colleagues, actually was like, well, you know what? You know the person you know uh, as John Legend's wife? You know who that is? Yeah, sure. Uh, okay. You're looking at me it's like you want me to say it. So I was like, Chrissy Teigen. Yeah. It's actually Chrissy Teigen. I mean, I'm not <laughs> that surprised. 
I don't it's think. It's out there. You can find, like, if you Google Chrissy Teigen, Teigen pronunciation, there are lots and lots of interviews where she was like, actually, it's Teigen, but it hasn't stuck. Because she, well, partly because she answers to Teigen, right? Right. Partly because every time somebody says, and Chrissy Teigen, she's like, yeah, it's me. Um, or maybe because, like, look, her, her, we all agree that her, like, her level of superstardom is not because of things she has hosted, like when she was on, um, you know, what was the show with, uh, with Josie? Lip Sync Battle? And, uh, oh, no. Oh, okay. The Fab? Or right. the... Fab life, fab life. The fab life, right. Her fame is not because of that or because of, even because of her Sports Illustrated covers, right? Her superstardom is because of her life on Instagram and Twitter, rather. Um, So it's, you know, mispronunciation is, is possible, right? Yeah. So now the question is, once you are armed with that knowledge, like once you hear about it, do you, is it your duty then to continue or to change and refer to Chrissy as Chrissy Teigen? Not until she does. That's my, th- and recently, like, I mean, I, you said there are lots of clips. I don't know when the last time was that she was 2019. like. 2019. And was she like, it bugs the hell out of me? Well, she was like joking about it. I think she was on Kelly or live with Kelly and Ryan, right? And she right. was just laughing about it. And she was like, no, no, it's Tigan. But, you know, everybody's just gotten so used to it that I'm just kind of, as you said, I just answered to it. But it is Tigan. So what do you <laughs> I think, I think it's her stage name now. Like, sure, Christine Tigan may be married to John Stevens, right? Mm-hmm. But it's John Legend and Chrissy Teigen. Like, I think that's sort of what that's about. It reminds me of um, Miley Cyrus a bit. Because, of course, like, there was a time when everybody was like, I like Miley Cyrus, when people would be like, oh, do you mean you like Destiny Hope? Destiny Hope. (laughs) And eventually, like, Miley Cyrus herself was like, oh, who are we kidding here? And changed her name to Miley Ray Cyrus, right? Yeah. So... There's that. Like, I think there are points where people give in to that kind of thing, um, whether or not that's okay. I mean, I don't know, man. I think if anybody has control over her uh, online image, Chrissy is the the closest to somebody who has control over it. All it would take would be a few videos or stories saying Tigan and people would change. So I have to assume that if she's not doing that, she is either uh, amused by the mispronunciation or has decided to lean into it. Not that I think it's okay. If you don't like the way somebody's pronouncing your name, correct them. Well, I I really, I, I you know, I think that you have, uh, uh, I don't know, as a dad or a parent or an auntie would say, Duana, you really entered into a field that will be ex- endlessly interesting and will never uh, be obsolete your specialty of names because 
you know, uh, there may be some things that in a hundred years, some, certain professions won't exist anymore, but you, the name therapist, your profession will always exist because people will always need to be called by something. And there are so many different ways of like examining this conversation. Obviously, fundamentally, um, much of it has to do with identity. Like right now, one of the movies I'm the most excited about seeing is Minari. And I think you're excited about it mm. too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have a screener for it sitting in my inbox. I can't wait to watch it because um, I'm supposed to do the junket soon. And so, but the supporting actress who plays the grandmother in the film um, is from South Korea and her name is Yoon Yo Jung. Uh, Yoon, Y-O-U-N, being her mm -hmm. family name and Yo Jung being her given name. Right. And online, I've seen it listed in many different ways. Ya Jung Yoon, so mm -hmm. her given names, then followed by her family names. Although, like, you'll recall last year when Parasite was doing the thing, we never said Jun Ho Bong. It was always Bong Jun Ho, right? Which right. is how you refer to somebody in Korean. And in many Asian, like, you know, in Chinese too, you talk, you say family name first and given names. But, um, sorry, Yoon Ya Jung, uh, to go back to my point, is probably one of the strongest contenders for Best Supporting Actress. Um, and so she will be part of the conversation. You and I will be talking about her as we approach awards season. We're getting close, right? Lots of other people will be talking about her as soon as the movie mm -hmm. comes out. It's coming out in a couple weeks. So um, it's interesting to me to see how, how people are going to like, especially in the Western world, are, are going to like present this. Like for me, the Laney Gossip stance is going to be Yoon Ya Jung. We are going to refer to her as... Family name, given name, just the, like the way we did with Bong Joon-ho. Right. But, you know, I'm old enough that I can remember uh, when the difficult name in nominations was Sophie Okonedo. Um, and I think it will be down to who pronounces her name the first time it's announced, right? If she's nominated for a Golden Globe, that name will be read out loud who uh, pronounces it, and hopefully that's somebody who has some sensitivity and wants to practice. Although, as we saw at the inauguration, even people who know better and who want to do better sometimes stumble. Please practice people's names in general. But uh, if it is done the other way, if it is uh, Yanya Yoon uh, in the first announcement, then it will be endlessly corrected and it will be a problem up to and including the awards. That's my I'm gonna see how, prediction. I'm going to see how she's listed accredited in the film. That's because, a, yeah. yeah, the film is directed by Lee Isaac Chung, who is a Korean-American. Um, so um, I'm interested to see how, yeah, the film and, and the credits roll out. Um, but, and I will tell you how the film is too, because I think that I, we talked about the trailer when it first came out. I think both of us were already crying. Oh, but you reminded me of something so exciting. Have you been watching Lupin? I have not been watching Lupin. <gasps> I've been thinking about watching oh. Lupin. Oh. I've been thinking about watching Lupin. And then, you know what? There's a person I really admire, um, and I won't name her, and I asked her, I was like, hey, have you watched Lupin? And then she was like, yeah, and she was very medium about it. And then she was like, I guess the best way I could describe it is, um, and she, she's like, I saw this on Twitter, um, the best of network TV. Oh, I don't agree, but... 
Um, it, do I know this person? Do I need to like not? I don't know this do person intimately. You don't person? know this person intimately, anyway. no. Um, but uh, I wonder, and not to cast any aspersions, but here's the thing, and this is why I bring it up. Um, Lupin, if you don't know, is a French production. Um, it's actually a co-production, but for all intents and purposes, it is a French production. Um, but it is available in dubbed English. And I cannot say Why would you how, watch it in dubbed English? Well, but that's why they're putting it on. That's why it's number one on Netflix. I believe strongly not everybody is going to be reading all the subtitles. And even I'm here to say watch it with the subtitles. Like, mm-hmm. absolutely. His voice is so evocative and important and sexy. I'm just going to say it. Um, but I think that you probably lose something with the English dubbing. I think mm-hmm. there's probably something that is is meant to be heard in the original French. Uh, and so my point being, A, do things as they were meant to be done. Say say her name again because you've got it memorized. Uh, in Yun Yajang. Right. So it's meant to be Yun Yajang, right? Yeah. Similarly, and that's an, obviously that's an anglicized pronunciation. Like that is not the way it sounds in Korean. It's just that I don't know how to say it in Korean. Yeah, but I'm pretty confident that that is going to be the most authentic pronunciation we're going to hear in North America that's not spoken by a Korean person uh, in the next six to eight weeks. Similarly... If you're going to watch Lupin, and God, please watch it, um, watch in the original French. I do need something to do with my hands. I can't play with my phone, so I might need to take up knitting or something. Um, but it is, it's just incredible. And you can tell that the, the rhythms in French and the way it works make it better. Does that make sense? Right. But okay, so if we're actually talking about names and subtitles and whatnot, is it Lupin or is it Lupin? Uh, it's probably Lupin. It is Lupin. But in fact, the name and the deployment of his name or names, because there are many, uh, is kind of a plot point. So okay. it is Lupin. But who are we kidding? If I got on here and said, <laughs> are you watching Lupin? Everybody would be like, next, I'm going to Dax Shepard. Goodbye. <laughs> Right. Well, but I, you know, I, I think that that is, I wonder if that's the next step is, you know, do we pronounce, like, I, our, our friend, um, I'll call her Lolo, our friend Lolo and I are always, you know, because we're both, like, fluent in French, are always cringing at, like, oftentimes the names of how designers are pronounced on the red carpet. Like, it's, uh, the Lanvin is, it makes me crazy. Uh-huh. Um that's right. L-A-N-V-I-N, right? It's right. not Lanvin, it's Lanvin. Right. Um, Lanvin. Um, and the Christian Louboutin. Right. Um, so I don't know, like, is that, should we just, if we're, we're trying to be, like, more respectful, respectful of how things are pronounced, do we, listen, and I know nobody needs to feel sorry for Lanvin and Louboutin, but here's what I have to say about that. The star is Omar Sy, uh, S-Y. He is... I love him. Spectacular. Oh, he's so good. I assume that he will be everywhere, uh, you know, as usual, should already have a million opportunities, but if he didn't, this is going to do it. However he pronounces it, people will then 
fall in line to do so because he is the Pied Piper of just about everything. I would follow that man anywhere. And I don't just mean in an, oh, he's so attractive way, although that too. Um, so if he says, yes, people love Lupin, that's what it'll be. If he says Lupin, uh, then that's where we'll go from there. Although, and, you know, we should probably progress. But if you can think of a of a name or a product of something that is not uh, traditionally English, that is pronounced properly in North America or in Europe, let us know. Like, email us yeah. about what's the best pronunciation of, I don't know, Lancôme or whatever else is a sort of commonly used non-English product or brand? Well, to start our episode, um, legitimately, like our first topic, it's a continuation, I guess, maybe of a theme this season, which I think is related to identity. Last week, we talked about Aquafina. We just had a long conversation longer than we expected about names and pronunciation. And I pitched you this story um, from The Hollywood Reporter at the start of the Sundance Film Festival, or as we are in the middle of the Sundance Film Festival this year, one of the films is called Passing. Again, it is having its world premiere at Sundance. It stars Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega, and it's directed by Rebecca Hall. The film is based on a book that was released in the 20s or 30s. It's about two women, uh, one, uh, both of them are black women. One is passing. That's why the, the, the title of the film is called Passing. One passes for white and lives essentially as, as a white woman, not revealing um, that she is black. And the other um, can't pass um, and so lives as a black woman. And the story is about, I haven't read the book, but I've read many times what the synopsis is and this article in The Hollywood Reporter. And the revelation here is, you know, if you've seen any movie with Rebecca Hall, Rebecca Hall Vicky Cristina Barcelona, The Town, um, any of the work she's done, when you look at Rebecca Hall, you are, oh, okay, this is a white woman. Why is a white woman directing a story about race? Right. And I should say she also wrote the script. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, shop the script around uh, to get financial backing before uh, she wound up as the director. That's right. right. Um, and I and, just want to yeah. add, sorry, to what you're saying, that uh, Rebecca Hall, if you can't quite picture her, you'll know as soon as you Google, but she's not just uh, a white woman. She's kind of one of those people who is the most British-looking person you've ever seen. Like, right. you know, uh, the kind of... Uh, posture and pronunciation and so forth that you associate with uh, being in a boarding school movie with Kate Winslet back in the day. I don't know if right. she was, but I wouldn't in any way blink if you had said so. Fair? That's right. Right. Okay. So to your point about she wrote the screenplay, um, she shopped it around, and uh, Forrest Whitaker is one of the um, the producers of this film. Mm -hmm. which I found fascinating. He actually, you know, is act produces quite a lot of films. It's just we don't talk about Forrest Whitaker in, in that, like what, when he wears that hat. Anyway, one of the, the things that sealed the deal uh, for her to get this movie made is that when, you know, Forrest Whitaker and other producing partners 
asked her, this is a fascinating story, Rebecca. I just, you know, we don't know if you should be the one telling it. You're a white woman. I know you wrote the screenplay. She then said, well, actually, my mother, mm-hmm. uh, a famous opera singer from, mm-hmm. from Detroit, um, is actually biracial and mm-hmm. passed for white almost her entire career. Right. Um, and so uh, that was when the producers were like, aha, you know something about this story. Um, anyway, so here we are. The film is called Passing. The story is fascinating. And for the first time, I mean, like, again, you know, for not that we, not that Rebecca Hall covers us weekly every week, but as you said, Duanna, here is someone who presents and passes for, you know, Kate Winslet. Right. And that doesn't, that's not just by accident. She's born in London in the UK. Her father is a stage director uh, and the founder of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, Her mother, as you say, is an opera singer. There's a certain, um, there's a certain school or uh, like cadre that people come from. Right. And even later on in the article in The Hollywood Reporter, it says that she and Ruth Negan knew each other from the very small uh, London theater world, you know. So, um, yeah, it's unexpected in terms of who we thought Rebecca Hall is. And it's fascinating. Right. Like, you know, the, the this is it's fascinating for a couple of reasons. There's a line Uh, just to underscore what you said about uh, the concerns with uh, Forrest Whitaker and his partners, uh, his partner, Nina Yang, pardon me, and his partner, Nina Yang Bongiovi. Um, There's a line here that says, uh, as producers whose mandate is to champion multicultural stories told from an authentic perspective, they weren't sure that the British actress was the right person to helm a film about the Black American experience, mm-hmm. which, fair enough, right? Yeah. And so I should say that at this point, uh, you know, things differ a little bit between TV and film. We've said that a billion times. But at this point, certainly in television development and script development, everybody wants to know your personal connection to every story. Why are you the person to tell this story is a question that comes up constantly, even, I imagine, if you are directing, you know, Transformers or Spy Kids or whatever. It's why is this story for you? In some ways, that's great. You know, it's asking you to highlight your personal experience and personal connection. And so the reason that I brought up that that phrase in this uh article is because uh, I find it, I find that, I find that these things can get overly simplistic at times, right? The idea that, uh, for example, Taika Waititi is a, uh, a New Zealand director. And the idea being like, do we know of others? Uh, and if we don't, is Taika Waititi the only one who can tell a New Zealand story and et cetera? One of the many things that I like about this story is that as a British actress, as they label her, um, she's an outsider to the Black American experience. 
But what's amazing about that is that uh, somebody who grows up as a black American and then tries to pass, you need that outsider's perspective to tell that story. If you're talking about somebody who is passing, who is trying to fit in in a world where they don't. So that's a really interesting way into this, I think. Um, but the other part of it, and I think, uh, I think you know this, is I was devouring this article because of the things that Rebecca Hall was saying about identity. That yes. knowing about uh, her own identity, about her mother's uh, identity and background, and it sounds as though she wasn't always super a, clear or B, upfront about what her racial background was, um, that this is just stuff that Rebecca Hall was discovering as an adult person, um, as a person even in her 30s, you know, and wow, do I relate to that. Like, it's not, it's not only about me, but I wonder how many people feel this way. It is fascinating to me. It was fascinating to me, and I don't necessarily relate to it, but it is fascinating to me that essentially, um, you know, her, her, her exploring the story, adapting the story, wanting to make this movie was, of course, in service of the original story and in service of, you know, creativity, but also research on herself. And that's why we keep coming back to that word identity. You know, she talks um, about always thinking that her mother may have been black, that her, as you said, her mother wasn't exactly forthcoming for reasons, right? For reasons. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. imagine being an artist back in the day um, and you're getting into opera, which is, I don't imagine, like was a particularly inclusive world. Um, and, and, you know, the general atmosphere and, and the general vibe of that era. Um, so growing up, having a big mystery questions, and we all have questions and, you know, so our, our parents can be mysterious to us in some way, right? We only know them as like our parents. They had other lives, uh, like for those, so that's a baseline for those of us. Our parents have had other lives outside of us, before us. And then for her mother, for her in particular, her mother's identity as related to her identity um, and how complicated it is to grow up, as you said, in the cadre of English elite, cultural elite, mm -hmm. and then to be living in these times where we are all interrogating um, our attitudes about race, our own biases, our own, you know, prejudices. Um, and, and through which lens. And then for her to find herself in that intersection where she may have a family connection, but how uncomfortable it is to kind of, you know, you don't want to be exploitative, right? Like uh, you don't want to be a hilarious Baldwin. Um, <laughs> nope. <laughs> right? So uh, she's very candid about it. Like, and it's tricky waters to navigate, which is why this also is fascinating. I think the reason that it is fascinating and so, so topical is that for so many people involved in this project uh, and others, and another place that I really relate to this is you are having to navigate all these things um, as a unit of one. Uh, you know, it says here that Thompson, meaning Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega are both biracial. 
but that means very different things for both of them, right? What that means, what they look like, how people perceive them. Uh, and then Rebecca Hall, also a biracial person. Does she still, does she identify that way? Does she not? You're having to navigate these things without the overarching kind of comfort of, well, this is what it is to be Black, or this is what it is to be Chinese, or so forth. Um, certainly, I relate to this as somebody who is, uh, you know, I am half Egyptian, um, but I'm half Egyptian born to an Egyptian person who, uh, you know, immigrated to really, like, Countries that were white dominant where passing or fitting in is incredibly important, right? So do I have as much Egyptian heritage as I wish I did? Not by a long shot because that was devalued by um, my dad, but that was devalued because of where he was living and what he was choosing to do and where he was choosing to pass by all accounts, right? So um, I think what's really interesting here, but what's also echoed in the story, which is so fascinating, is uh, trying to figure it out for yourself without any sort of surrounding atmosphere of this is what it is to be. um, Because I think that is one thing that nobody tells you how to be in a dominant culture. Certainly it is assimilate or not right? Mm -hmm. But also, um, you know, it, it, nobody tells you where to fit if you think you don't fit somewhere else. Uh, and that's a long winded way of saying, not only is this an interesting conversation from Rebecca Hall, not only is it interesting for Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega, but again, this is the story of Claire is the character who passes as white. Um, which in is, is not in and of itself a new story, right? Like famously, uh, allegedly, uh, Thomas Jefferson's kids with Sally Hemings passed as white in the world and so forth. But it's having somebody tell the story, which might initially feel like an albatross. Oh, I don't have a strong cultural heritage. I don't know a lot about this culture. Actually informs the writing and then the directing of uh, the Claire character figuring out ways to be in a world that she doesn't belong to. I, it's, it's a really nice sort of charming idea of, oh, your, your alleged negative becomes a positive. Yeah. I, you know, I, I did think of you and just to FYI for those people listening, you know, we had a brief back and forth about our comfort level and where we could go in this conversation, because as you just shared, you are biracial by like, by, actual DNA. Well, but it's complicated. I know why you're saying that because yes, I recently, like I got my 23andMe and I was super, uh, I was laughing because it is, uh, of all the ones I've seen, it's right down the middle, right? Yeah. Um, But um, Egyptian uh, colorism, first of all, and Mm -hmm. like race origins is widely debated. There is a wide swath of what people who are Egyptian look like let alone identify as. And um, even in that assessment of, uh, in the 23andMe, there's not enough data in Egypt, for example, to really pinpoint things about my DNA or about Egyptian people's DNA relative to the, like, I mean, it's kind of a joke, but, you know, I have 1,500 fourth cousins on that thing. 
Ask me yeah. how many are Irish. Like that's <laughs> that's that, you know. So it is, yeah. Am I biracial? I don't know. Am I allowed to say that? I don't yeah. know. I feel differently. No, ab- I'm not saying, yeah, you're allowed. I'm saying, yes, these are the questions that are these complicated, are the questions. right? Yes. Is Rebecca Hall allowed to, you know, based on how she looks? Right. Is your racial identity, we know it's not determined by how you mm-hmm. look, but she points out somewhere in this piece, you know, I don't walk through the world as a person of color. And I identify strongly with that mm-hmm. statement. Yes. I always used to say uh, when these questions started coming up about, you know, uh, when you work in, in TV and film, people have gotten very bald about it. So listen, I'm doing the tally for the, the regulatory agency or the this yeah. and the that. And um, so are you diverse? That's what uh-huh. people will say. Full stop. Yes. Uh, and what I have said is I, I'm not going to call myself a person of color, um, but I absolutely identify as a child of immigrants. I know what that mm-hmm. experience is and so forth. But is there, is there more to it? Maybe. Are there a million conversations that I've heard in the past few years about, you know, microaggressions about hair, for example, or right. um, about... Uh, facial, you know, uh, characteristics or whatnot, that if I really dig in, I go, yeah, I've had a, quite a few of those. It's just that mm-hmm. people don't have a label to put them under. It's complicated. Yeah. It's interesting. And it's incredibly interesting that, that basically Rebecca Hall is working out her identity issues mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. this film. Yes. And through, and, and the added level of complication and trickiness is, through this film and through the promotion of it, right? Listen, they they had to get, you know, they are on the cover of The Hollywood Reporter. So they, uh, you know, in this article, which if you haven't read, we will link to it in the show notes. Um, so they address it right away before the film is, starts buzzing at, at Sundance. It probably will attract uh, a lot of interest because of, number one, the subject matter. It's three women taking the lead. It's obviously like a hyped project. So part of the the promotional plan really, because everyone has a promotional plan, is when do we reveal this, right? Um, you do have to get ahead of it because if you just saw the synopsis, this is a story about two biracial women and one passes and one doesn't, directed by Rebecca Hall. You know, the the Twitter would be all over it. Why the fuck is Rebecca Hall directing this movie? So this I thought is, that. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, like, there I, you go. I fully was like, well, how, how come? Yeah. It's right. A, you know? And it's so a question. This, and I'm, it I is love a question. the answer. I'm delighted by the answer. But it's a question that now people ask. Yes. And so that's why... Um, it, it, the, uh, to go back to my point about the added layer of complication, the way she's working out her identity through the film and also through the promotion of the film. This is really the first time she may have shared in her intimate circles and her colleagues working on this film what her identity or her identity research in progress is. But now she's sharing her identity and the grappling with it with essentially like cinephiles, the movie going public, the Sundance Film Festival, as a way to promote it and to justify her involvement with it. Well, that's part of what is hard, right? 
every yeah. time you are asked, me and Rebecca Hall, we're now in the same category, but every time you're asked, well, are you diverse? The question is, well, am I trading on that? Is Am I mm-hmm. leaning on something that I am not entitled to? Yeah. I, I don't always know the answers, you know? No. Uh, I would argue that, you know, in the purest sense of something, you know, are you giving a perspective to this writing room, to this project that, uh, you know, Karen from Poughkeepsie doesn't give? 100%. I feel super yeah. confident about that. I can own that. But am I taking away an opportunity from somebody who doesn't get that opportunity because they are black or indigenous or, you know, have a last name that is hard for people to say, uh, you know, then I have more trouble with it. Uh, yeah. Is this movie only getting this much attention because of this amazing story and because Rebecca Hall was only a name? Eh, kind of. Uh, Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega are both already amazing names, so it could stand on its own. But... Right. But does it get more attention because of now Rebecca Hall's story, this revelation, and her background? But remember, Rebecca Hall still has an English accent and came from this English elite cultural circle and is white passing. Like, But this is maybe, and look, time will tell whether this is the right time for this, but we were always going to get here, which is to say um, what we're talking about essentially is intersectional racial identity, right? Or intersectional cultural identity. Um, And it's almost too early for that because we still do not have proper representation and storytelling from so many different types of people who have not been represented, whose stories still aren't seen as interesting. Um, That, But there are people whose stories are not as... um, black and white, pardon the term, or whose backgrounds are not as black and white. And those stories also need to be told. Let me give you a little micro example. Uh, In a lot of the work that I have done, um, I've always wanted to represent parents. I do a lot of work around teenagers or people in their young 20s. And inevitably, somebody somewhere along the way gives me the note of, well, the parents are too harsh. Or I once heard no parent would do that. And I'm sitting there in the moment going, do I tell them that my parents did exactly that and that I know a lot of people who wouldn't um, or or who would have done the same? And these days, because people want to know about your cultural background and so forth, I am more likely to come back with, well, here's the thing. In this family, which is comprised of people of color, this is how that is seen. This is something that parents do in, you know, in immigrant families or issues that they have, uh, sleepovers, for example, Mm -hmm. immigrant parents hate sleepovers. You and I have talked about this many times, but I don't know if people in the larger world know that there are so many things that are taboos that you don't hear about that you don't see. Right. And that there can be many things, uh, the same way that not every, Anyway, we know this. Not every Chinese story is about uh, learning to play the piano. Not every um, indigenous story is about, you know, returning to the reservation to learn about the this and the that. There are millions of stories, as many stories as there are people. And we're beginning to get to a place where maybe people can have more than one identity. But devil's advocate is 
Yeah, but of course it goes to a tall, beautiful, wealthy, uh, mm-hmm. white presenting woman first. With an English accent. Yes, exactly. Right. Um, and and that is like, yeah, that is what was so, again, um, and these are, these are conversations like uh, we've asked lots of questions with no answers. As you said, Duanna, you don't have the answers. This is what you're wrestling with yourself, how you move through the world, how you describe yourself while moving the, through the world. And I have different answers now than I would have five years ago. And that's yeah. weird for people, for myself, it's weird. And for people who have known me for many years. Mm-hmm. It is weird to go, well, what do you mean you struggle with your identity? Like, I've known you for this long and you haven't. But it's almost like these conversations that we're all having give me a kind of permission that I didn't mm-hmm. have for a long time to question those things. So um, while we don't have any answers about Rebecca Hall and the film, I think that, you know, what we're going to see from the film in the weeks, days to come, and maybe year, if it does well, if it gets acquired, if it's, you know, worth the buzz and the hype that, that we're, we're, we're looking at, and it's only been a few days so far of the festival, um, these are going to be conversations and questions that people are wrestling with. And it's going to be controversial. It's going to be polarizing. There may be some people who are uh, going to have objections. There may be some people who are going to be like, no way, man, this is her story too. Um, and that in itself, that conflict will be interesting too, but get ready for it. Heads up. That'll be the work. Absolutely. The worst part about this whole story is that as of the time we're recording this, uh, I don't think there's a major sale yet. So we don't yet know when we can see it. Uh, or where it will be streaming or distributed. But I think if nothing else, this conversation is going to mean somebody's going to put it on somewhere. Uh, And then we can all have this conversation again once we've all seen it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, so I pitched you the last story. Here's a story you pitched me, and it is also about a film that um, didn't make waves this year at Sundance, but last year in 2020 at Sundance premiered a Promising Young Woman starring Carrie Mulligan. And at the time, there was a critic who wrote for Variety, a freelancer, I believe, um, who wrote for Variety, and uh, she objected to the review, specifically one part in the review. Carrie Mulligan objected. That's right. Did I yeah. not say her name? Uh, it just got oh. lost because you said the critic, okay. and that it sounded like the critic okay. was a woman, you know? So uh, Carrie Mulligan objected to the male critic writing about the film and her performance in it, um, and uh, she has been talking about it or mentioned it, recently as the film is now available to stream and of course is a possible contender for award season. And there now has since been a lot of talk about 
critics um, and uh, their lens and, you know, when you can push back, specifically because Variety has apologized for the review. And there are now journalists who are coming forward saying they're quite uncomfortable with Variety's apology, with the fact that a movie star, an actor can raise an objection to a review and then have, you know, the uh, publication essentially recant the review. So, um, yeah, you uh, wanted to talk about this. I also think this is a really interesting subject about work, about art, um, and about the lines that uh, we draw and are crossed. So let's do it. Yeah. So the thing that is so interesting about this is that everybody was uh, excited, first of all, to see this movie, right? Like Mm -hmm. Promising Young Woman, I feel like we've been hearing about for a long time. And then all of a sudden, uh, the conversation was not actually about uh, the movie per se, although people have a lot of opinions about it, um, but actually about this situation with the critics. So the Variety Film Critics said, in part, I'm going to read part of what he said, um, and this was a year ago. Mulligan, a fine actress, seems a bit of an odd choice as this admittedly many-layered apparent femme fatale. Margot Robbie is a producer here, and one can, perhaps too easily, imagine the role might have been intended for her. Whereas with this star, Cassie, the character, wears her pickup bait gear like bad drag, even her long blonde hair seems a put-on. He goes on to talk about the American accent, which I'm not sure if he would have mentioned uh, if Carrie Mulligan weren't British, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a critical review for sure. And um, as you point out, it is uh, a freelancer. But when Carrie Mulligan complained about it in an interview uh, relatively recently, Uh, she implied that somebody had commented on her appearance or her Mm -hmm. body and, you know, and said she wasn't hot enough. Yes. And the question is whether that is a correct interpretation of this review. Right. So her quote, Carrie Mulligan's, was, quote, it felt like it was basically saying, it being the review, It felt like it was basically saying that I wasn't hot enough to pull off this kind of ruse. Um, yeah. So, and you just read the paragraph in question. I read part of it. Uh, You know, I should actually finish saying that after he talks about her voice, uh, the quoted uh, section continues. Still, like everything here, this turn is skillful entertaining and challenging, even when the eccentric method obscures the precise message. So, which would lead one to believe it's overall a positive review of the film, Mm -hmm. which would further lead one to believe that this is one of those cases, possibly, this is the debate, of a performer being sensitive about critique but it's a critique about her appearance. But appearance is an essential part of the film. 
but is it okay to critique, uh, you know, a woman's appearance uh, up to and including a writer, a critic named uh, Alyssa Rosenberg, who writes for the Washington Post, at boiling it down to, are actors' appearances fair game for critique? Do actors' appearances matter? There's a nice big topic for us. Discuss. <laughs> I mean, God, I listen. I think that we we just went through a lot there. So let's just start with. Was that your interpretation of what the critic was trying to say? And was he trying to say it, but he couched it in some different language? Okay, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm going to say no because of the specifics of the film, right? Um, Mm -hmm. We have always talked about typecasting in Hollywood or casting against type right? This is a thing that we do. Um, in fact, uh, when you pitch a project, you always have to say, this is a so-and-so type. This is a Chrissy Teigen type to do a throwback. This is a Patricia Clarkson type. This is a Riz Ahmed type. Um, so, you know, is it, you can see somebody saying, uh, this is a Margot Robbie type character. And, of course, Margot Robbie, as we pointed out, is one of the producers. Uh, And, in fact, one of the uh, kind of vocal uh, critics of Variety's decision to apologize points out that relatively recently, Margot Robbie actually said something similar. Um, Which is to say, and I'm scrolling to make sure that that I get this right, Um, But relatively recently, uh, Margot Robbie said uh, when she was asked about the film, people wondered why I wasn't playing this role. And I said, because blah, 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 producing reasons or whatever. But, uh, you know, the question has been raised. Uh, I think the question would not be raised if this were being produced by, say, Boris Whitaker, as we were talking about in our last story, right? Yeah. It's the comparison is there because Margot Robbie is also a blonde actress who's producing this film. And because okay. of the films that she's produced, yeah, she has started. See, I think that, you know, I'm listen, when we're when we're when we're talking about this, we can't forget why or like we you have to we have to figure out why Carrie interpreted that paragraph to mean I wasn't hot enough, right? And I well, think part how long of the do you reason have? <laughs> right. And I think part of the reason is because there's Margot Robbie's name there. Um, Margot Robbie is cast in in many films, superhero, you know, um, also the hot girl. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She has yep. been. I believe she was up perhaps for a role in the Barbie movie. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Right. So let's not, let's not pretend that there isn't a visual like uh, standard where, when you mention a Margot Robbie. So if I'm Carrie Mulligan or I'm trying to understand why Carrie Mulligan interpreted this, interpreted this paragraph this way, it's seeing Margot's name in there and that the writer was writing around or trying to get at the presentation of physicality, the appearance of a certain character. And essentially his critique was, I couldn't really see Carrie in this role as this, you know, woman who goes about doing this thing. 
Right. And um, from there we got, I, I'm not hot enough. Yeah. And we should say um, that's a small part in a larger review. I think it's worth pointing out that the film is getting pretty mixed reviews, um, that there were early excited reviews when it was first screened. But now that people are seeing it, there are some people going, all of this for what? So at the same time, you also have to go, uh, is this an easy target for uh, to counteract people who are uh, anti the film at this time? And I think that's extra interesting because uh, the Variety Review as a whole was, you know, kind of very positive in in many ways, you know. So it's it seems like maybe protesting too much. Um, and I think people are surprised because Carrie Mulligan doesn't seem like a vain actor. So, it you know, it doesn't seem like she's the type to get bent out of shape about a review. So then people go, well, then there must be something to this, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe there is. Maybe... Uh, maybe we're not hearing things. Maybe there is a dog whistle here um, that we are not sensitive to or not hearing. But am I, I mean, do you see something, do you see something that was worthy of Variety apologizing? I, listen, I think that there have been many more egregious reviews. Mm-hmm. Of this For film? sure. No, in, in general, general. Right. In general. I definitely think there have been like, slap you in the face, undeniable sexist reviews. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I don't think this qualifies as one of those. The paragraph in question, I do have some issues with it. Yes, I, I see your point about it being standard in film and television when you're pitching an idea to like have types. This is a show like this, but mixed with this, with a character who's kind of like this, but mixed like this, mixed in with shades of this character from this show. I've seen you do it enough times and you ask me about things enough times and ask me to make those comparisons for you when I'm right, coming right, right. out with an idea that I, I get it. I don't know if, but I think that that's your brain reading it. And I'm not sure in general, the people who read movie reviews, I I don't know that like even a five out of a 10, like quote, like even five out of 10 people would get that. They would just say like, you know, so I, I understand why that paragraph is somewhat problematic Though not a 10 out of 10 bad, fire the person, holy shit, this is trash. So to your point, should should Variety have issued the apology? No. I think that's a, a step, that's an overreaction to something that was already like arguable and, and merited a bigger, better conversation. Right. Um, and there are, look, I kind of believe, I think, that everybody in this situation maybe is having sober second thoughts. Um, Obviously, the writer, Dennis Harvey, is uh, horrified by this and was was deeply offended to be uh, kind of tarred with a misogynist brush. It doesn't help that the, like, the pull quote uh, in some places from what was a New York Times article is, they said I wasn't hot enough. Um, which is like a real boiling down. 
um, uh, of what happened. Uh, anyhow, uh, so he sort of is offended to say the least. Um, and then in turn, uh, Carrie Mulligan responded to Variety mm-hmm. having yeah. apologized uh, and said, I feel it's important that criticism is constructive. I think it's important that we are looking at the right things when it comes to work and we're looking at the art and we're looking at the performance and the way that a film is made. And I don't think that goes to the appearance of an actor or your personal preference for what an actor does or doesn't look like, which it felt like that article did. But there's still one more layer here in my mind. And that is that the plot of the movie and the moves of the Carrie Mulligan character revolve around being the sort of, um, how do I put this? They revolve around portraying a stereotypical male fantasy of a blonde, drunk woman. Is that a fair summation? Yes, at the certainly at the beginning. Yes, right. That's that's the sandbox that she's playing in. Right, is what happens if I dress up like a stereotype, essentially. So, yeah, there's there's a conversation to be had. I'm not ready to come down one side or another, but there's a conversation mm-hmm. to be had about whether his assessment of oh, is this what she's doing is in the context of this specific movie and storyline in a way that it wouldn't if we were talking about any other movie. Well, you know, and that is the bigger question, the one you asked at the very beginning, and then we we had to sort of go granular before we go back out, is appearance. And another conversation that, you know, a lot of people were having uh, just a couple of weeks ago was um, the news with uh, that Nicole Kidman has been cast to play Lucille Ball. Right. And there were a lot of people who are like, huh? Because Lucille Ball's, let's face it, Lucille Ball's uh, uh, acting was exterior. It was like everything was big, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Gestures were big. Facial expressions were big. You know, she knew to screw up her face and move her eyes around and do a silly face on her mouth and, and her hands and all of that. And Nicole is very much an interior actor. We, we see everything to vibrating. Say, yeah, the least. To say the least. <laughs> right. So, yes, of course, physicality, I think, has something to do with it, where I do think that you can comment and say, oh, really? I, I can't picture that person in that role. Sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong. Another example would be Kristen Stewart. When it was announced that Kristen Stewart would be playing Princess Diana, I mean, first of all, the height difference, right? Princess Diana was a statuesque woman. You um, know, it's funny that you say that because I always thought Kristen Stewart was tall. I guess she isn't, but I, I've always thought not of her Diana as a, height. Okay, but 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 few actresses are. I don't know how tall Emma Corrin is, um, but few actresses. No, she's are also not Diana. Five eleven, yes. right? Unless you're casting. Uh, Brooke Shields or Jamila Jamil. Those are basically yeah. your options for a 5'11 Diana. <laughs> um, anyway, so the point is, is that, yeah, like there were a lot of people who were like, huh, Kristen Stewart? Like, don't see the vibe. You know, she's uh, punk uh, and Twilight and Bella and not Diana. And then just uh, last week, the first production photos came out of Kristen Stewart and, as Diana. And everybody was like, holy shit, that's, you know, a facsimile. Yeah, you so, thought they were retouched yes. because it's so similar. 
Yes. But of so course- yes, of course we can talk about appearances. Yeah, of course you can. Um, but only to the point that they, um, you know, the, the, the Lucille Ball thing bugs me because I'm like, how lazy are we? Really? Like, first of all, no disrespect to Ms. Lucille Ball, but like, how authentic was the red hair? Are we really only looking at red-haired actresses here? Like, come on. But um, that said, yeah, it's about a dynamic. It's about an energy, which is where, and I'm such a fan of Carrie Mulligan, so I hesitate to bring this up, but which is where I have to wonder, you know, because she, the quote in the New York Times that leads us into this whole conversation is she says, I read reviews because I'm weak. Or I read the Variety Review. It's one or the other, phrase-wise. And I have to wonder, because this is Carrie Mulligan playing against type in this role, I have to wonder whether this review glanced by something that is actually an insecurity of her own. Whether she wondered, can I be hot enough for this role um, because I, I have trouble reading it and, and thinking that's a direct hit. You know, you said it's not a 10 out of 10 on the misogyny scale and I agree, but I also think it's a stretch to even like it's, 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 it's a stretch to get there. Um, if, you know, if it were about, oh, I don't know, like a, a a buxom brunette or a, you know, if it was Emma Stone in this role, for example, or anybody else who doesn't look like a Margot Robbie type, it just seems like it's, it's, it hit harder than it needed to necessarily, especially for an actress of Carrie Mulligan's level who has certainly been through it a few times, right? In terms of like, gets what this is all about. And so I wondered whether it was actually echoing some of the things that her darkest little inside person was was telling her about the part to begin with. Yeah. It's also, you know, we I I don't want to be like mercenary about this, but of all the contenders this year, um for best picture and for all the performances, this is the one movie that is quite polarizing. Uh the pe- mm-hmm. they're the people who hate it hate it, like are angry, but want to shout about it and want to keep talking about it. The people who love it, love it and want to keep shouting about it and talking about it. So that already was working. You would, you could argue in its favor that no other film in the field is getting people this worked up. And then on the heels of that, just as that was fading away, this controversy, if you want to call it, mm-hmm. explodes. And it's right as voters are making their decisions and thinking about performances. And, you know, uh, you're tapping into a, a conversation that we have been having or the industry has been having over the last few years that is misogyny, how women are treated in the business, you know, how things are written about them in scripts. You've talked about this, how lazy it is in in some scripts where the actress or the character, the female character is described as she is so hot. And um, you, I mean, you throw me out of line. Oh, it's, it's the classic. Stella, always, 25. Uh, beautiful, but doesn't know it, you know, yes, or yeah. um, sometimes you read one that says something like, uh, you know, uh, so-and-so 30 and her prime is in the rear view mirror. 
Yeah. Some shit like that that you're like, yes. oh, wow. Yes. Um, and this has gotten like plugged into that same conversation, unfortunately. Like, I don't know that people are picking apart the nuance, especially those who are having just a top line conversation about this. Um, it's not unlike the place we went to when um, uh, uh, Nancy Myers' daughter. Uh, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. remember the journalist's name, Rachel Handler wrote right. that the, the series on Nancy Myers, like the, so respectful and Nancy Myers daughter, Haley Myers Shire caused this huge thing on Instagram, objecting to the whole series and claiming sexism and that it was unfair. Um, and celebrities jumped on being like, yeah, rah, 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 you're right. And journalists were like, what the fuck are you talking about, right? Here's a woman celebrating a, a, a female auteur's work, and you can't just slap things with the label of sexist, misogynist. You wouldn't do this if it was a man on top of something. But unfortunately, the Hollywood types, the Reese Witherspoons who liked Haley Myers Shires, you know, Instagram, they just got kind of like got lost into that conversation about like, just go women. And it's, well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. But the criticism was a little bit more complicated as well. I think what most people heard was don't be sexist about Nancy Myers. Uh, but the root of the complaint, uh, cause I didn't know this until I read a bit further was uh, that there is a line uh, somewhere in one of the many pieces uh, that says uh, that Haley Myers Shire ostensibly directed her her first film, but the implication is that maybe it was uh, heavily influenced by her mother, uh, yes. if not shepherded, right? So yeah. again, and you know, both things can be true, Lord mm-hmm. knows, but again, we sort of have the, oh, here is the actual thorn that is making somebody who arguably should know better Mm -hmm. so upset uh, about the, you know, about something that would otherwise roll off. Like the relationship between celebrities and press or public figures and press is uh, long known to be, we take each other with 80 grains of salt, right? Well, but it goes back to the, your point about Carrie and the nugget, that dark place that maybe was triggered by that one paragraph. To go back to Haley Meyer Shire, it's that one place where you're a director, your mother's a director of recognizable films for women, and you directed a, a film that belongs in loosely, if you want, into that in categorization. Yeah. And yeah. are you, d- did it tap into a place in the back of her mind, being the daughter of Nancy Myers that a journalist touched on? And your reaction wasn't so much about what was actually written, but about what's in there, mm-hmm. like Carrie, which is, I think, what you were saying about Carrie, too. Absolutely. And not even necessarily about whether or not she is hot enough in the bigger sense, because I think Carrie Mulligan's like married and has two children. And I don't think she gives that much of a fuck what uh, somebody thinks about her hotness, but whether or not it was a problem in her performance, in her portrayal, whether it takes you out of the film. Yeah. But you'll know, like, you know, Nancy Meyershire, you know, threw up this objection on Instagram um, many journalists came up to defend Rachel Handler. Mm-hmm. Um, Vulture did not fucking apologize. Mm-hmm. 
they were like, we stand by the reporting. Now, granted, this is different, right? Like this was a very well-researched series that ran over the course of a week that was worked on over a period of months. The the variety um, the variety review of uh, promising young woman was you know obviously you can't compare the the work that would have gone into both pieces and yet Variety made the decision to walk back their review um, and to apologize for it which in the grand scheme of things I don't know like what does it mean that's why. Film critics and journalists are having a hard time with this. This is not sitting well with a lot of people because it well, could lead to a certain precedent. Here's my feeling on that one. Um, I think that both of those examples in a big wide swath um, play on the trope. I don't even want to say trope, but play on the uh, very real reality of Lots of people who write about film and television has have historically dismissed women and what women mm-hmm. do say and care about, right? Yeah. Under the yep. biggest umbrella, both of these complaints live there, right? Yeah. Yeah. The difference being uh, the cut or vulture, I don't remember which, uh, which vertical uh, all the Nancy Myers stuff comes under. Um, either way they are expressly and overtly so often about women and women's perspectives that I don't think they ever go, oh, is this a black mark on our record? Whereas Variety, let's be real, historically has employed a ton of uh, critics who are white men and they may or may not agree with this assessment, but they're going, "Uh, we have some black marks on our record in the past. We better walk this one back. So it comes to, it, it becomes about standing behind your product and Vulture and The Cut and the whole New York Magazine family know very well that they can stand behind their kind of journalistic ethos when it comes to dealing with women's things, issues, mm-hmm. topics with sensitivity. Yeah. So where does that leave us? I mean, I still think it leaves us at uh, this is noise that is taking away from a conversation about the film that maybe isn't going the way people expected it would go. Um, but I do think critics should have the right to say, I'm not sure if I buy this person in this role. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And especially if it has to do with if the role glances on physicality somehow. I think you would expect to talk about it the same way that I suspect if we go back and look, there are people saying, God, I never thought Mark Ruffalo would be big and menacing as the Hulk, but gosh, he does it or he doesn't do it. And yet no other lead actress candidate in the award season race is being talked about as much as Carrie Mulligan right now. Well, now (laughs) that's interesting. And on that note, thank you so much for listening. Send us your thoughts on Carrie Mulligan. Send us your thoughts on Rebecca Hall and passing. Share your own experiences with identity, what you're wrestling with, what you're unpacking. Uh, We so appreciate hearing from you. We want to know what you have discovered lately, uh, including whether or not you want to read uh, reviews and articles uh, about people who don't know what your experiences are. 
Uh, you guys have been sending us a lot of great things, some of which uh, we're throwing into lineups for upcoming shows. So thank you so much. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave comments and reviews. Uh, thank you again. And we'll be back soon. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.